You are listening to the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast, the show for first-time leaders, for that moment in your career when the buck stops with you. This is your window into the world of how to lead successfully. Now, over to your host, James Nagel. Hi, and welcome to the new episode of the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast, the show for first-time leaders. I'm James Nagel, and my guest today is Alistair Payton. Alistair's had two careers. For the first 15 years, he worked with Unilever and Novartis in commercial and general management roles. And for the last 20 years, he has been an executive search consultant, aka headhunter. Formerly global chair at Signium, he has recently joined a disruptive new player, August Leadership, as managing partner for Europe. I met him a few years back, and when thinking of a headhunter that I would want to listen to if I was a first-time leader changing companies, Alistair was on my hit list. So it's my pleasure to introduce Alistair Payton. Hi, Alistair. Thank you, James. Appreciate being here. Okay, so as you know, in this series of conversations, I'm going to talk to all the people that uh, deal with uh, first-time leaders. So that starts from human resources to the headhunter um, to the the boss, the eventual boss of the of the new leader. Um, and clearly, in all this mix, you're the matchmaker between the company uh, and the candidate. And really, today I'm fascinated to talk about the candidate side. So. You've met lots of these people over the years. So what are you personally looking for when you have that first conversation? Yeah, thanks, thanks James. I think the first thing I'd say is is the the role of the headhunter in this, if there is one involved, is pretty important. And I take it as something I, I feel very responsible, I guess, and also very angry sometimes when I see situations where there's been a poor match and the candidate doesn't work out and the client's unhappy, the candidate's unhappy, usually the client can find somebody else. But for the candidate, if they make the wrong decision, you know, that's something that can affect their confidence, their career for a considerable time afterwards. So I think the process is really important and how you go about it from a recruiter standpoint as well as from a candidate standpoint are critical. So for me, that first that first interaction with a candidate, that first conversation is is really critical and i'm i'm looking for all the things you'd expect i'm looking for a, a potential match with the uh, the profile i've got from the client so uh, capabilities competencies experience you know usually i've got at least some of that previously from a cv a linkedin profile a recommendation from someone but what i'm looking for under the skin of all of that i suppose when i speak to somebody for the first time is I'm looking for someone who's open-minded, so somebody who's prepared to just have a conversation. You know, it's not a sales call, and it shouldn't be, because I shouldn't be persuading anybody to move anywhere, and they shouldn't be impressing me that they're the right person at this stage to go ahead and take this job. So it should be an open-minded, grown-up conversation. Uh, I expect people to – I respect and respond to people, you know, who, who listen. You know, I try and be reasonably concise but I want them to listen to to what I've got to say. Um, I, I look for thoughtful questions from people, uh, not just the usual things about does it come with a big car or you know what's the salary or you know can I get time off for my holiday in the summer? But you know thoughtful questions about whether this is a good challenging move for them. And I'd expect that I expect them to ask me challenging questions 
to demonstrate to themselves that I know the answers. If you've got headhunters who are calling up and they don't have answers to questions that you ask them, then then put the phone down, I would say. Expect us to have answers to some of these questions or to get them for you. I look for two or three other things. I look for intellect, but not necessarily academic uh, intellect. I'm looking for a sharpness, you know, a kind of quality and a mental agility when people are talking to me. So all this is going on kind of subliminally, I suppose, a lot of the time. And it's really about trying to find, you know, is this somebody I can work with during a process as well? Can I get on with someone? Do I feel that they're being honest and open with me? Uh, And the last thing we look for, because our clients are pushing very hard for it, and because we think it's the right thing, is we look for diversity. So, yes, some of that's about visual diversity, but a lot of it is about just, has this person got something, a spark of something, that just might bring a bit of different thinking to, to, to the client, not always the same as the person who perhaps has left the job or is about to leave the job. Those are the kind of things I, I kind of look for in that first conversation. Well, there's a lot to chew on there. Uh, what really struck me is your comment about the stakes are high for the candidate. And I think that's maybe a nice moment to just introduce how we how we met when I was myself you know, a one company veteran with 20 years and I was looking at a transition and you said to me, look, probably you're going to end up moving to, you know, more a uh, medium sized company after this, just also given where I wanted to live. And we had a really good discussion at the time in terms of, you know, was that going to be right? And you opened my eyes like nobody else in terms of what was, what was going to be involved there. So, you know, when you, when you raise that point to the, the candidates, look, the stakes are high. What do you see in their eyes? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, you often, they often don't appreciate, I don't think, how significant this change might be to move companies. You know, moving into senior, more senior leadership roles is one thing in the same company when you've got lots of anchor points and reference points and people, mentors, you know, people who trust you. Doing it in another environment is a whole new thing. And I think, um, you know, I look for a bit of, um, not nervousness, but I I want people who appreciate the scale of the challenge that they're taking on. I don't want to put people in a position where they can't handle it. It's a bit like, um, it's a bit like an organ transplant when you move someone from one place to another. Um, you know, you look at statistics for organ transplants and anything between 25 and 80% of transplants are successful over two or three years. I think in when you move a senior person from one organization to another, uh, you know, we talked about this before, James. I think I think our evidence suggests it's about a 50% success rate. And that might sound shocking to people because presumably you're bringing somebody who's qualified and experienced and putting them in a role that they can do. But it's not that that usually causes them to fail. You know, a CFO is not going to fail because he can't add up. It's um, It's about just perhaps expectations on the client side that they expect someone who's kind of superhero better than everybody internally and on the candidate side it can be just this belief that their trajectory that they've had in the company they've been in is going to continue and therefore they don't really appreciate that they the the, the cultural changes that make a difference to whether you succeed or not um the team that you you you, you join to be in charge of there may be people in that team who wanted the job that you've been given externally. You're used to support because you've grown up in an organization. But when you move companies, 
Um, or even if in the same company you move to a different division or a more senior role, you know, you, you probably don't appreciate you've got people there who are probably waiting for you to fail sometimes. You know, hopefully your boss isn't, but certainly some of the people who didn't get the job might be. And I think I think it's really important to understand the scale of that challenge. It's not to say don't do it, because that's what our job is, is to get matches to make people, uh, to help people uh, to make it work. But I think if you look at, there's, there's, there's some evidence that the cost of getting this wrong for an organization can be anything up to 15 times the annual salary of an individual. You know, if you look at the cost of rehiring, recruitment costs, the cost of people who leave, you know, who, who are perhaps on the way up, who see if, they, if they, they don't respect the individual that's joined and therefore decide to leave themselves. Uh, the lost opportunity in the marketplace if you have a person who just doesn't, doesn't hit the ground running. So these things are very, it's very critical for the organization and it's probably more critical for the individual. So I, I look for people who are, you know, appreciate the scale of that challenge, accept responsibility for their path in that transition. Uh, who ask questions all the way through, are proactive, um, use external advisors to kind of give them advice during the, 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 the process. Um, those sorts of things, I guess, I'd, I'd look for in somebody. Yeah. In terms of the calculation, I, I've done it a slightly different way. I've done it from the candidate point of view. And if you look at a 35 to 40-year-old who's making a move to general management, if they get it wrong, I, I, I add that up as about two to three million for their for their career between between a successful move and average move never to mind a failed move i think a failed move has lots of other other connotations so you mentioned something really interesting which was sometimes the hiring company can look for a superhero or expect a superhero yeah where does that where does that blind spot come from because you know, the, the, the paper CV of what they have and what they're looking for probably isn't that different. <laughs> so do you have any insights in where, where that blind spot comes on the, on the recruiting side? Um, I, I think it's, um, I think with a lot of people, there's a belief that, that somehow, you know, your internal talent, because you know them really well, you know, it's probably not as good as somebody else externally. There's a, there's this, this kind of almost, you know, there's this overemphasis, I think, on competence and capability. Um, so, you know, digital roles are a great example. You know, we, we've gone through a phase where lots of clients wanted to bring in a, a director of digital, a head of digital, somebody with real digital experience. And they didn't look at the people they'd had internally and think, have we got people here who, who've got that base skill, who can work with agencies, for example, to bring that into the organization. They often went and said, well, we need to go and find who are the best people in digital and can we poach someone from Amazon or Google or whatever to come in and help us to become digital? Um, and if you can imagine a fairly sleepy uh, food manufacturing organization, for example, parachuting somebody from, from um, Palo Alto in California into their, their manufacturing operation in Ireland, for example, nothing wrong with Ireland, obviously, um, the cultural fit is completely – so the, 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 the CEO probably thinks I've got the best person I can get. The headhunter's taking a fat fee for doing it. But for the candidate, you know, the shock of coming into that kind of culture and environment where they're teaching people from the beginning what to do means they're probably not going to be very happy. They'll feel drained and unsupported and as though they don't have people around them who are like them. For the organization – 
suddenly they've been, you know, a rock has been thrown into the pond and somebody's telling them that everything they've been doing is all wrong and it should all be done digitally. And there's a there's a language barrier, there's an expectation barrier. And I just think um, I just think people assume that, that these things are all radical and revolutionary and you need to bring somebody in from the outside to do them. I, I think that's very rarely the case. And I think particularly now, the future is so uncertain for so many businesses and so many sectors that the last thing you need is a narrow technical specialist. You need somebody joining who can do whatever the technical role is, but you need somebody who fits culturally with the business, who can empathize, engage, who can who can fit in the culture and help as a, 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 a as someone with real talent who can grow in the organization and help uh, help the whole organization. So so I, I think there's lots of reasons why clients probably, you know, get get some of that wrong. But uh, but that, that's some some of the reasons I've seen certainly. So great! I'm happy to look at that that part where you know the paperwork's all signed, the candidates now starting the role. What you've outlined as the challenges seem seem reasonably obvious. Um, looking at the posture of the the boss what support do they typically provide yeah no that's a, that's a very it's a good question james and I, i'm going through it now because i'm moving i'm moving organizations myself so i uh, you know i've got my own my own medicine to kind of take here i suppose um you know it it depends on the you know, it's interesting you said what is what support does the individual does the boss give i think often you know the, the the line manager, the the CEO or the divisional head or whoever it is, will often want and be prepared to give plenty of their time, support, advice. But they don't realise that this is an organisational challenge. To bring somebody in at this sort of level into the organisation is much more than that. And often there's been a mismatch of expectations. You know the recruiter has probably oversold the role, so the candidate joins and it's perhaps quite not what they thought. The um, the organisation is expecting this superhero to arrive. Uh, who's going to change everything and make it better? So even though the individual boss might be, might want and be prepared to give lots of support, the pressures on the individual when they join, you know, are pretty significant. And what they shouldn't do is try and replicate what they had before because it's a different environment. So if you've come out of Procter and Gamble and you're used to a a really structured process in supply chain or marketing or finance, whatever it may be, and you've joined a private equity business. Um, you can't expect that you can replicate what you did there in that environment. You have to take your toolkit that you've learned at P&G and you have to bring the bits that are relevant and adapt it to the culture and the organization that you're in. So I, I just don't think, um, I don't think organizations often are, are, and it is changing, it is evolving, but I think um, organizations need should realize that particularly when you're part of our brief is often to bring in diverse thinkers. So if you're bringing in diverse thinkers, by definition, there's going to be slight mismatches with the organization that they're joining. So it's only going to get kind of worse. And I think what what a lot of organizations now do really well internally is they, uh, you know, I worked for Unilever for a long time and promotion was was usually internal. So it wasn't as diverse as it should be. But it meant that you did get lots of support as you went through and you, you had anchor points in the organization as you moved up. That's not the case when you move companies. And I think organizations need to think before the person joins, you know, is there anything I learned in the recruitment process from the 
assessments I did, the interview notes, what you know, the people they met, where I can I can use that to build some kind of onboarding system which helps, which is tailored for them. Do I need external support? What advice can the headhunter give? Um, are there coaches externally? Is there a, a mentor internally? And how do I make that ecosystem all work together to help the person? But the worst thing they can do, I think, is assume that the person is just going to somehow magically uh, survive and thrive without any of the support. And we, we talked, James, about how, you know, when you're a graduate joining an organization, you, you have this incredibly structured way of getting to know the organization and no one expects you to deliver from day one. When you're a leader joining an organization, it's kind of the other way around. The expectations are higher and the support, in inverted commas, from the whole organization you get uh, is usually limited to, you know, here's the tea and coffee, here's the canteen, you know, here's here's where you get, you know, choose your company car or whatever. It, it's not about how do things get done around here. And I think back to one of your original points about what do we look for in people moving? Uh, you know, I'm always, we, we use something called um, integration fit when we look at candidates. And it's about trying to get under the skin of, do we think they've got the uh, flexibility, agility, um, uh, willingness to adapt their skills and experience to understand a new culture and therefore move into it successfully. And we look we look for that as much as we can. It's slightly intangible, but it's often the reason people don't work out. So does that make sense, James? It makes makes a ton of sense. I could pick up on so, so much of it. What happens when you get the call from someone you've placed, whether it's one week or one month down the road, and they're struggling What's your message to them? <laughs> you know, you, you you try to empathize with them usually and say, look, you know what, try and understand what's gone on, what support they've had. Try and understand really what it is that is the challenge, what they're finding particularly challenging. And usually it's stuff around process, systems, language. Kind of, as I said before, how do things happen around here? And then you try from experience to draw parallels with other people who've made the transition successfully. And if you know the company well, you may even point out to them one or two people in the organization who've successfully transferred that they may want to reach out to as, as kind of informal mentors or people that can help them. So we try to, to, to get them to just think, um, you know, this is natural. You go through this phase, you'll feel a bit out of your depth. You will not feel like the superhero that they think they've recruited um, and that kind of, it's not quite imposter syndrome, but increasingly, as we talked before, uh, James, increasingly, I think, with with more diverse candidates coming in, with more women, more introverts, uh, with more people who perhaps come from different ethnic backgrounds, they don't always think in exactly the same way or respond to the same leadership styles. So they will struggle in those early days in an organization. And it's just important to to help them through that by listening. And then what we also try and do, which is critical, is, you know, where we have a, a good relationship with the CEO, or the HR director, uh, in confidence, you know, they will call, call us up at the same time and say, look, um, you know, what do you think is happening here? I'm finding this. What do you, you know, what, what are they saying to you? And you've got to be very careful not to give away any confidences, but, um, but equally just trying to impress on the client the, um, the need to provide uh, time, support, and, and it's not just about expecting them to deliver is, is really important. And the best clients, you know, and this is giving clients advice rather than candidates, but the, 
the best clients are those who say to us that all the way through the process, what else can I do? What, what can I? What, what sorts of things do, do the best organizations do when they hire? Um, what questions have you got for me? You know, they'll see it as a two-way process with us, and they'll be very open to us suggesting things that they can look at or do. Not all clients are like that, and our relationships with all our clients may not be as strong with some as they are with others. But where we have a strong relationship and open clients, they have higher success rates when they're higher, frankly. It's as simple as that. Which brings me back a bit to the point where, you know, you've had the seven interviews, all the psychometric tests, there's the short list, there's two or three people left, and they make the decision. And you're still involved at that stage heavily. And there's never the ideal candidate. There's a preferred one, but all of them have things which, you know, they're, they're maybe a bit weaker on. At that point, why is an action plan not put in place to address those actions? Because there's no client I've met who I've asked <laughs> the question, what, right, you were chosen, but what, you know, what were the gaps that were, that were identified through the whole process and what was done about them? No one has ever been aware of that. So there seems to be a, a break in the process where everything's done very well up until the sort of offer letter is made. But then all that history is lost. And I'm, I'm just fascinated because from everything you've said, it doesn't sound like things have necessarily improved over the years. And in fact, given diversity and many other factors which you've highlighted, things are becoming even tougher. So why is that? Why is the ball dropped at that point? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. And it's, you know, it's kind of hard to know in every case, but some of it is around the, you know, just particularly with big companies, everything is in, you know, buckets from a budget standpoint so the recruitment budget is there to pay for recruitment fees or advertising or whatever the idea that you might actually have to pay somebody somewhere uh, or allocate internal resource to nurturing or helping a new leader in, 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 in an organization is kind of slightly alien to most organizations because there's this 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 kind of macho ego-based approach which still is in so many organizations, which says, well, if, if I've paid this much to find this person, if the headhunter thinks they're great, if the psychometrics show that they're outstanding, um, and I've met them and they're really impressive, all I've got to do is just, is just press a button, get them in, and, and, and press go, and they're off, you know, off they'll go. I think there's just a, a very transactional, tactical approach to, to all of this. And again, where organizations do this really well, they have much more of a, a holistic approach to leadership. So it's not just about, because many organizations historically, and Unilever was one, said, you know, we recruit people as graduates and we train them and develop them. So there's a recruitment budget to find them, and then there's a training and development budget, and they're different. Now, even Unilever now, but many organizations realize you can't think that way anymore. Talent has to be looked at holistically. So it's about identifying it internally or exter externally, nurturing it, doing plenty of assessments of your leadership talent, pipelining. Um, and then when people move, you're in a much better position, I suppose, to recognize the support they may need. So where you've got that philosophy, and it's more of a philosophy, I think, about developing leadership, identifying it, um, going outside where you need it, where you've got that holistic leadership approach, I think people are more prepared to have an intervention. And the intervention could be somebody externally who can help, you know, before the person at the stage you've just, just you know, you've, you've mentioned, when the person's accepted an offer, you know, it might be a month or three months before they join. 
you know, a the the, the transition starts then. Their, their preparation for joining should start then because it's about mindset as well as about practical stuff. Um, and usually you don't have internal capability to do that other than maybe somebody in HR who calls them. So you need specialists. You need to work with coaches or mentors um, either externally or if you've got them internally. Um, we'll sometimes see at a very senior level, you know, a non-executive director, for example, might be asked to, to help with something like that. But um, but if not, you need you need some other mechanism, and I just think companies just don't see that as a they, they don't see that investment. I suppose as there isn't a budget for it might be the the simplest way of describing it because they're not looking at things in in the round. So I think it's about budgets and it's about mindset, and, and I think the best organisations now are realising they need interventions to help support. In the US, there's there are several organisations that charge very high fees to just simply do onboarding of senior executives. That's all they do. And they'll charge fixed fees um, in the tens of thousands of dollars to, to help onboard an individual. Because give Americans their due, while they may fire people relatively easy, easily, when they hire someone, they really want that person to succeed and they will invest in them. Uh, I think a lot of what you've just said there is the more pressure tested the candidate is before they start the more tough questions they've had the better they may not enjoy it and the advice that i would leave any any listeners with is if you're in that privileged position where you have the offer letter from the company you want to go to is before you sign to ask the two questions which is look what really needs done here and wait for the answer and the second one is and why me why have you chosen me to do this um so look, that's my parting advice. Um, if I can ask you the same, I know I know it's after all you've given to try and crystallize it. But from the candidate side, what's the one thing you would you would uh, tell them to help them to succeed at that at that transition? I think it's the, the one thing I, I I like what what you've said, and and if the candidate's got the confidence to ask those questions, that's perfect. And if the client is not prepared to answer them. I would seriously think about whether you want to join that business. For me, the one thing is is linked to that, which is all the way through the process, realize that you are in control. You know, don't get sucked into feeling that, you know, isn't it wonderful that they've approached me? Uh, you know, you're so, you, you, your ego is being stroked all the way through the process and you don't you don't look at the, the, the things critically enough. You don't manage the process. You don't ask for that extra meeting, for example, that you think might put them off hiring you. I would say if your gut tells you that A, it's not right, or B, you need to ask more questions, or C, you need to meet more people, I would never as a headhunter think badly of a candidate who did that. I, I do. I would think badly of a candidate who had 50 questions. So look, Alistair, uh, we could have gone on for uh, a lot longer, I think. Uh, that was great. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, James. You've been listening to the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast. Subscribe at swimnotsink.com forward slash podcast.